Job 32 in your Bibles, where the Lord willing will continue a further study of the book of Job. I felt guilty last after last Sunday in covering so quickly the words of Elihu and the words of God. I didn't I did not feel guilty about covering so quickly the words of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But I did feel guilty about going so quickly over the words of Elihu, and this morning I want to deal exclusively with the words of Elihu in chapters 32 through 37. It's not going to be verse for verse, but it will deal with the more difficult ones and will deal with the more important verses. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee that You didst inspire Elihu to write the words that we have contained in Job, the 32nd through the 37th chapters. O Lord, I thank Thee that Thou hast inspired those words and preserved them and kept them to our generation, that we can read them and from them find and learn a proper perspective on our lives. O Lord, it is my goal as Thy servant to teach a group of people to have Thee for their portion that regardless of what happens to them here in this world, they'll look to Thee, they'll trust in Thee, and fear Thee, and love Thee for naught. Lord, I want a congregation that will love Thee for naught. That if Satan even had the opportunity, which he does not, thanks be to God, to accuse them before Thy presence, they would definitely love and fear Thee for naught. Heavenly Father, grant that we might lift up our hands, that we might not be faint in our minds, but that we would cheer ourselves in joy and affliction, knowing that it is evidence of our relationship to Thee, and that we might glory and worship Thee as Job did in the beginning of his affliction. Have mercy upon us now and grant us understanding by Thy Holy Spirit to the end that this congregation might please Thee more perfectly, and if they have not loved Thee before as they ought to have, let us begin today, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. I have been accused in the past, and I've told you this before, that because I sometimes preach in series, I make it impossible for the Holy Spirit to use my preaching. There are those type of ministers who believe that being used of the Spirit is to walk into the pulpit with an empty mind. That is, you didn't study the, work be the week before, you worked all week at a job. And you come into the pulpit and you tell everyone that you're pitiful, you're ignorant, you haven't studied your Bible, and now you're going to drop it open. And please pray for me that the Spirit will guide me to some passage to preach to you. That is a bunch of fatalistic hogwash. And I'm being kind in the choice of words. The Lord uses studying. He has never used a man who didn't prepare. You say, but I thought the Bible says that the Lord would give His disciples the words to speak without preparation in Matthew chapter 24. Yes, he did his apostles when they were in court before kings and magistrates. But he never called his ministers to apply that passage to the ministry. We're to study and to give ourselves wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now I want to show you something this morning that I hope will cheer your hearts about my ministry. I have wanted to preach on Job for a while, but just hadn't been led to preach on it yet. And it was 
Easter Sunday evening, and I use that expression simply in the way that the word the world uses it and in the way Acts chapter 12 and verse 4 uses it. It was Easter Sunday evening when Brother Red Baker mentioned something to me about Elihu and Job, and we exchanged a few thoughts, and that led me in the next several days to read Job several times and want to preach on it. Now, that was about April 20th. Easter Sunday was April 19th. That was about Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday of that week. April 20th, 21st, or 22nd. As you know, on Friday I flew to St. Louis and didn't come back until Sunday afternoon. So I didn't get my mail on Saturday, did I? On Monday morning, I went out to my mailbox and got the mail from Saturday. And I had a letter from the state of Louisiana dated April 21st, 1987, which was Tuesday of the previous week. Last Sunday evening, and all of Sunday, I preached to you from the book of Job all day. What chapter did I emphasize out of the book of Job? There was chapter 33. Chapter 33 is the kernel, the, the chapter of understanding in the book of Job. I emphasized chapter 33, and in my opinion, last Sunday evening we had a precious time in Job chapter 33. I get this letter on Monday morning from Linda Hodgson. Now, I know she's going to hear my voice on the audio tapes that she receives, but I want her to hear them. On Monday morning, after I preached that on Sunday, I received a letter from Linda asking me this question. If there are any tapes dealing with the book of Job, especially chapter 33, I would like to order those. May God be praised Amen. for you using a rotten vessel like me to preach His Word for His people who want some answers. How's that for a Monday morning pickup? I mean, the world may need their coffee. All I need is a letter like that once a week. Isn't that great? Is there any tapes where you've taught out of Job and especially chapter 33? Well, what did we do last weekend? But Job chapter 33. May God be praised for the use of study. Now, he told us to do it that way, and it works. It definitely works. Remember what we covered last week about the book of Job? I want you all familiar with Job so that you can dive into it and know right where you're at. Remember the first two chapters describe Satan's two primary attacks against Job. First of all, he took away all his possessions. Job hung right in there. Naked came I of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God. And when Satan came before the Lord, the Lord said to him, Look at Job. Although you've moved me to destroy him, he still retains his integrity. Job hadn't charged God foolishly yet. Job hadn't sinned with his mouth yet. In chapter 2, Satan takes away Job's physical health so that he's sitting in a campfire with a broken piece of pottery scraping the boils that he has, sore boils, the Bible tells us, from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Then his wife asks him to curse God and die, and he calls her a foolish woman and says, Shall not, if the Lord gives, can't the Lord also take away? And again, the Holy Spirit tells us Job has not sinned yet. He's worshiping God because God can do what He wants with His creation. Then those three friends come along, 
And they're the ones that finally have an influence on Job, as we discovered in reading the rest of the chapters. In chapter 3, Job begins complaining. In chapter 4, Eliphaz, the leader of the three, condemns Job. Then Job defends. Then Bildad condemns. Then Job defends. Then Zophar condemns. Then Job defends. That's a cycle. Each man taking his turn. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Between each one, Job using a chapter or two to defend himself. Because remember, they just made the flat-out statement, hey, looking at you, it's easy to tell what's wrong. You're a wicked hypocrite, and God's judging you. And then Job would try to defend himself, and it gets worse as we go along. I'm a pretty righteous man. In fact, now that I think about it, God's not even being fair with me. That's how the book of Job develops. They go through one cycle. Then Eliphaz starts over, and they go through a second cycle. Eliphaz built at Zophar, Job defending himself after each attack. Then they go through a third cycle. And then Job cuts loose with a long summary statement running from about chapter 26 through chapter 31. And then the words of Job are ended. You can see that in chapter 31, verse 40. The words of Job are ended. And now the author of the book of Job takes up and gives us five wonderful chapters from the mouth of God explaining exactly what was going on. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes on this morning reviewing these five chapters a little more carefully than we did last Sunday evening. Verse 1 of chapter 32, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. I mean, after three cycles, eight speeches, and they couldn't make any headway against Job. In fact, they were aggravating the situation. I mean, Job was getting more righteous the farther they went. They decided they'd all give up. Verse 2, Now there's a youngster sitting there, And I liken him to all the men and women in this congregation. I want you all to be like Elihu, because he had the right perspective. This youngster was sitting there, and now he's pretty upset. He's listened to enough hot air, as it were, for these chapters that have gone beforehand, and he wants to speak. Verse 2, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Now, Elihu's a godly man, and I want all of you to respond the same way. When you hear someone saying, this isn't fair, or complaining about this is so bad, what they're doing when they do that is saying this. They're condemning God and justifying themselves. And it ought to get a righteous man upset. When you hear someone complaining about their circumstances, They're talking foolishly and charging God wrongly like Job did. Now, Elihu got upset about it, and we ought to get upset. And you ought to with Job. Job's pitiful from chapter 3 through chapter 31, describing his righteousness. And when we hear that, we ought to cut people short. What do you mean you're complaining about your circumstances? There's no one in this church that has any right to complain about their circumstances. Either it's your fault they're so bad... Or, you're not getting nearly what you deserve. Now, if you look at it properly, what in the world are you saying it's so bad for? What you're saying is, God is giving you worse treatment than He ought to, and you're justifying yourself. You deserve better. Isn't that what you do? Whenever you complain about your circumstances, aren't you saying you deserve better? That is exactly what you're doing when you complain about your circumstances. I deserve better. That's why I'm complaining. So we ought to get mad against the Jobs 
You know what that means you're going to have to do from time to time? Get mad with yourself. Get mad with yourself. You ought to be having a lie who nature inside that jump wants to jump out of your skin and get on your case like Elihu is going to do here. Verse 3, Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were guilty of this crime. Job, you're a wicked hypocrite. That's why God's judging you. Yet they had no basis for that. They had no sin that they could bring up to say, Job, God's punishing you for this sin. So Elihu gets mad with the three men because their perspective is also wrong. Job's is, I deserve better than this. So Elihu's mad with Job. The three friends is, Job, you're so wicked, that's why God's punishing you this way. And Elihu gets upset with them because they didn't give a reason for why God would be punishing Job. They just said, in general, you're wicked. Now, we as Elihu ought to get upset with people who take that position, that God's judging me. God's judging me. Who are we going to have to get upset with from time to time? Ourselves. Anytime you get down on your knees and start crying or worrying about what you've done wrong, because God is punishing you, you are pulling an Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar. And any righteous person hears that's going to get upset about it. Because you're doing the same thing they did to Job. You just happen to be doing it to yourself. Oh, what have I done wrong? Oh, wringing your hands. What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? You may not have done anything wrong. God may be doing it for fun. You say, well, that's, I don't like that. Yeah, praise the Lord. That's right. If he wants to do it, what do I mean by fun? I mean doing it for his own pleasure. And it's always going to result in our profit anyway. We ought to just praise the Lord for it. This is so important. You know, we go through life, we're either Job or we're Bildad. One or the other. Most of the time, we're one or the other. If we think it's unfair, we're Job. And we ought to get upset at ourselves. And we ought to get upset at each other when we hear it. If we go through life saying, what have I done wrong now? Here comes God beating me again. What have I done wrong this time? We're like Eliphaz and the others condemning ourselves without a cause. I'm gonna, I'll get and explain that in just a moment. Though God does afflict men by chastening for their sins, God doesn't always afflict men for their sins. He has other purposes in mind sometimes for afflicting men. And that's the first three verses. Notice, Elihu is the only man that has the proper, per, the, the only man that has the proper perspective. Job and his three friends are both wrong, although differently wrong. That's why they were arguing back and forth. Because Job was saying, I'm righteous. They were saying, you're a wicked hypocrite. Both of them were wrong. See, Job was justifying himself, saying, God doesn't have the right to do this to me. Bildad was saying, he has more than enough right because you're a wicked hypocrite. They were both wrong. Elihu was the only one that had the proper perspective. Now, in verse 4, down through the end of the chapter, Elihu explains a little bit about the attitude we ought to have toward the learned sages of our own generation of past generations. Verse 4, Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. He's referring primarily to this last long-winded speech that Job made that ended in chapter 31. Now, Elihu was a youngster. 
he sat around and let these older men exchange all their ideas, and his frustration level was just going up. If they'd have had a blood pressure monitor on his arm, you'd have seen it hitting 150 over 90, 200 over 120. He was boiling. I'll prove it. He was boiling, wanting to let those men hear some truth for a change. But he waited because they were older. There is a place for some respect. But he didn't wait forever. Verse 6. Well, verse 5. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, Days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, Hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. And he goes on describing this for several more verses. Look at verse 18. For I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. His spirits moved within him like Paul's was in Athens. He couldn't take listening to these idiotic philosophers and looking at their idols. He had to let go. And so did Elihu. Verse 19, Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. See, I told you his pressure was great. It was like wine that has to burst. I will speak in verse 20 that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, you hear somebody babbling back and forth about a problem or some aspect of human existence and life or experience, and they don't know what they're talking about, and it just boils up inside till you want to let them have it and get refreshed by telling them what's true. Does, does that ever happen to you? Or are you so ignorant, you're so ignorant that you never have anything to say? Or are you so intimidated by everyone else that you're ever afraid to offer your opinion? Now I want to say something to all of you. How many of you have worked to convert your parents? You don't need to raise your hands necessarily. I don't want to embarrass anyone. How hard do you work to convert your parents? Now, some of you are going to think that I'm going after you. I'm going after everyone. Some of you have talked specifically about this. Do you know what I often hear? I mean, I know that it's difficult. But the answer is, I just can't tell my parents they're wrong. It, it's just too hard. You know, I'm supposed to honor my parents, and I've obeyed them for 18 years until I left home, and I, it's just too hard for me to tell them they're wrong and try to correct them. Age should speak. Days should speak. But great men, your great big daddy, may not always be wise. And they need the truth unless you are intimidated into ungodly fear or you are ignorant of wisdom so that you don't have anything to impart or you don't love them enough to want to teach them wisdom. Now, you got to fall. I don't know of any other I'd give you more options if there were more. I don't know of any more. Either you're intimidated by men, which you shouldn't be, or you don't love them, or you're ignorant of wisdom and you don't really have anything to say. If you're filling yourself with this book, you're going to have things to say. It's going to well up inside of you like wine in a bottle. It's going to want to burst forth and you're going to be holding it back in and pretty, boof, it's going to come out 
and you're going to give even daddy, even mommy, some wisdom. I know it's hard, but we've got to do it. Unless you want to fall into one of those three categories. See, Elihu is giving us the character of a godly man. He is not intimidated. He's in, he shows respect. I didn't say to go home from this sermon, jump on the phone and tell your daddy he's a fool. Give the man an opportunity to speak because experience should speak before youth. But if he's not speaking wisdom, you want to show your opinion. You ought to show your opinion if you're to be like Elihu. Great men are not always wise. I, I'm, I find comfort in that. You know, every time, every systematic theology I pull off my shelf and read it, it doesn't agree with Scripture, and it's full with, filled with idiotic reasoning and idiotic uses of Scripture. It's sort of intimidating. You know, it's the, it's the mentality you hear so many times, how could all these good and godly men be wrong? Great men are not always wise. Elihu said they could easily be wrong. Great men are not always wise. Who cares what great men have said? Who cares if they live to be a hundred years old? Who cares if Charles Spurgeon is called the greatest Baptist preacher since the Apostle Paul? For those of you who've ever read Charles Spurgeon, you'll be hard-pressed to find anything worth remembering. Unless you like pretty little sermons with lots of illustrations and anecdotes. You say, you're, you're sounding awful cocky. Blessed be God for Elihu. Amen. Great men are not always wise. I will show you mine opinion. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. As a minister, this passage is beautiful to give me all the confidence in the world I need, connected with a couple more passages. How about Psalm 119, 98 through 100? Through God's Word, which is the inspiration we have available to us, through God's Word we can know more than our enemies, know more than our teachers, and know more than the ancients. The church fathers blow all 78 volumes right out the back door. Read this volume. It's got the inspiration to give you more wisdom than they had. And then when I get to 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, which is my verse, remember that, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why did God do that? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I thank God as of this moment, I couldn't care less what anyone believes, teaches, or tries to require from me. And I mean anyone. Great men are not always wise. Couldn't care less what they think. Because there's a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. I've got both of those. I've got the spirit in me called the spirit of illumination in Ephesians 2, and you have them in that measure. But I also have a gift of the spirit inside me that I'm supposed to stir up and make profitable in addition to what you have. And I also have this book, which you have. We don't need to be afraid of men, especially our parents. If we love our parents, we're going to try to convert them. We're not going to listen to their hogwash forever. But we're going to try to give, by hogwash I mean foolishness, like Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job. Now that doesn't mean we're going to throw wisdom at them forever. Once we throw them wisdom a few times and they just keep rejecting it, there is a place to deny a fool any further exposure to wisdom. You don't want him to have it. He's not worthy of it. 
But let's make sure that we all go that far and don't cut short our parents. Look at verse 21 of this chapter. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man, for I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my Maker would soon take me away. We ought not to call men, oh, doctor, doctor so-and-so. Let's listen to doctor explain the Bible to us. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, call no man father upon earth. Now I'm going to give you an explanation of Matthew 23 that makes Bible sense and may help you. Was Paul the father of the Corinthians? Yes. Could Paul be called a father of the Corinthians? Yes. But what did Jesus mean when he said, call no man father? Use Job 32. Flattering titles. Don't take the title. Don't take the title. Was Paul the father of the Corinthians? Absolutely. He begot them through the gospel. Was he to be referenced as father, father, father? No. That would be making the word, a noun, now a formal title, wouldn't it? Jesus said, call no man father on earth, call no man rabbi or teacher, call no man master, because we're to be servants. The ministry is to be a servant of the rest of the congregation. I don't need to be called pastor all the time. I don't need to be called elder all the time. I'm your brother. Go ahead and call me servant. Boy, don't go that far. You are to esteem the ministry very highly in love for their work's sake. But call me a servant. It's not going to bother me. Call me Brother Crosby. Brother Jonathan. I call you brother. I'm your brother. Notice, isn't that a nice interpretation of how Job 32 fits Matthew 23? Just don't take those words and make them a title. Rabbi, Rabbi, or Master so-and-so. Master so-and-so, elder so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. I don't need those. I'm your brother. I'm your servant. And Elihu says a godly man won't use flattering titles because he, it's, so, it's so serious of a matter that my maker would soon take me away to give flattering titles. Remember, those who like titles are also those who wear fancy garments in public to be known as religious men. The priests of Rome and the nuns of Rome fulfill it to a T wearing those great big garments and headdresses in public to be seen of men so that men will know there goes a religious man and he's called father and she's called mother and sometimes mother superior. But the Bible condemns those flattering titles. We don't need to use them. I thank God. I thank God for Job chapter 32 verses 4 through 22, in that it gives young men confidence. It ought to give every one of you confidence. You women should be able to sit down and correct your daddies. Great men are not always wise. And if you are filled with this book and have studied this book and have listened to the preaching, you have some wisdom you can give them. And while you show them honor and respect because they're your parents, yet you should love them also and you should love wisdom enough to want to speak it from time to time with them. Let's go now to chapter 33. Job 33. It's divided into two sections. Section, what we've had so far in chapter 32 is Elihu introducing himself. All of chapter 32 is basically Elihu introducing who he is. He's young. 
what he has going for him, the inspiration of the Almighty, and what his opinion is of Job and his three friends. Not very high. That's what we've learned in chapter 32. Now in 33, the first 13 verses, Elihu sort of joins in with the three friends and condemns Job in the first 13 verses. But he condemns Job in a different way. Let's read them. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. Does this sound like some preachers you've heard? I don't, I'm not sure if I know anything this morning, brethren. Please pray for me. I'll bet some of you know more than I do. You've studied your Bibles more than I... Forget it. Don't, don't, that isn't humility. That isn't humility. That's pride. That kind of garbage is pride. You're taking pride in your own voluntary humility. Do you know how a humble man... Was Elihu a humble man? How do we know he was a humble man? Because he was a godly man. And how does a humble man speak? Shut up, listen, and I'll teach you some knowledge. Clearly. You say, that doesn't sound humble to me. Let's go through the logic again and see if you can pick it up the second time. Was Elihu a humble man? Yes, Elihu was a humble man. Did Elihu say, I'm not sure what I'm talking about, but I'd like to offer my opinion. It may be right. Can we share some ideas this morning? He didn't share anything. He said, listen to my speeches and hearken to my words, and then I'll teach you some knowledge and I'll do it rather clearly. Verse 4, the Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. Stand up. If I'm not telling you the truth, refute it. If you can't refute it, shut up and listen and obey it. Behold, verse 6, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying... Now he quotes Job. I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. Now Elihu comments on that statement. Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Job had asked for an audience with God. Do you remember all that back through the previous chapters? He said, oh, I wish God would take his rod off me and sit down at the judgment bar with me. We'd reason this thing out. I'm using his words. And then he wouldn't flick me anymore. Well, Elihu comes along and says, I am in God's stead. Verse 6, Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid. Remember Job said, If he would take his terror away from me, give me a little bit of strength back, and let me sit down, well, I'd give him enough reasons that he'd get this rod off me. Remember all those statements? Well, Elihu remembered that. And this is a good way to deal with anyone. Remember what they said and use it against them. Yes, use it against them. I heard all that, Elihu said. Now I'm here in God's, as God's representative, in God's stead. But I'm made of clay too. Job, you were begging for some daysman between you. Well, I'm here. Here's the daysman. 
I'm in between you and God. My terror is not going to make you afraid. Now listen to me. Job got his wish. Now Job claimed that he was innocent when we read that quote in verses 9 through 11. He said, I'm clean without transgression. Now that's a nice boast to make. I am innocent. What's he claiming to be innocent of? Why is he saying I am innocent? All this trouble I'm receiving is not fair. It just isn't fair. I'm not that bad. The deceived heart, a delusion of a deceived Christian, wouldn't you say? I'm just not that bad. I'm innocent. It isn't fair, but he's marking me out. He finds occasion against me. He counts me for his enemy. And remember, the problem with Job is he justified himself rather than God. How do you justify God? God is right. I'm guilty. To justify God is just to say, God is right. To justify yourself to say, I'm right. When you say, I'm right, what are you saying about God when he's afflicting you? He's wrong. That's what Job was doing. Elihu comes right after him. Behold, verse 12, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. You know, I mentioned this last Sunday night, I know, and I emphasized it last Sunday night, but what a precious, short little statement. I will answer thee. You want the answer to the whole mess? God is greater than man. Let him rip me up. Let worms destroy this body after my skin. His skin was already on the way out. He said, let worms destroy this body. Get a proper perspective for a few verses. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. God is greater than man. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God. God is greater than man. That is the bottom line to all afflictions in this world. God is greater than man. You say, you've said it enough times. No, because I'm going to get a phone call saying, Pastor, why are so many things happening to me? Forget the phone call. You'll say it to yourself. And no one will call me anymore. Why are these things... Why are these things happening to me? It isn't fair. Oh, you don't say that to yourself? I'm not that bad? Why why is everything going wrong? Thou art not just. I'll answer your whole dilemma. God is greater than man. Let him do whatever he will, yet I will praise him, I'll magnify him, I'll rejoice in whatever he does. God is greater than man. Job had the right attitude, didn't he, in the beginning? Job chapter 1, he had the right attitude. He didn't sin. And you know, he didn't sin because he retained his integrity and he justified God. He, God's right. God can do whatever he wants. Listen, I came into this world with nothing. Wife, foolish wife. I came in with nothing. God's given. Can't God take away? He didn't charge God foolishly. Now he's charging God foolishly by complaining against his circumstances and saying, I'm innocent relative to all this punishment. When you say you're innocent and you don't deserve what's happening to you, you are saying God is not fair. God is wrong. That is not just. That is not right. God is greater than man. He can do whatever he wants. And if we would get down off our high horses and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and I'm going to show you this in a minute, God would jerk those afflictions away many times and exalt us. 
Do you know why Job lasted in that campfire longer than he needed to? Because of that rotten attitude. And I'm going to, you're going to see that. God would have pulled it away immediately if he would have just humbled himself and kept up the attitude he had in chapters 1 and 2. But he immediately began complaining in chapter 3. And then the three friends really got him on a roll. And so the Lord just left it there. In fact, the Lord aggravated it. I'll show you. But we'll get there in just a minute. Verses 1 through 13 of chapter 33 are Elihu condemning Job for his unjust and foolish claims of innocence before God. The whole conclusion is, God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? Now, how is Job striving against God? Because you may say to me, I'd never do that. Well, now, Job didn't stand there in the campfire and shake his fist at God and say, send a bolt of lightning, God, if you're there. I don't believe you're there. He didn't say it that way. He just said, I'm innocent. I don't deserve all this that's happening to me. This isn't fair. This is worse than I deserve. That is striving against God. For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Do you know what that means? God is greater than man. He can do whatever he wants. And guess what? He doesn't even have to tell you why. He doesn't have to give account of his matters. He can put you in that campfire and take everything away, and He doesn't have to answer to you. God is greater than man. Now, from 14 to 33, we have the nutshell of the book of Job where Elihu explains what is going on. In verses 14 through 33, he's going to explain a couple of ways that God deals with men. First of all, God speaks to them. Verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not audibly with his ear. God deals inwardly with man where the ear doesn't necessarily hear anything. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may with... I find this so interesting. Now notice, they don't perceive it. Their ears aren't working in verse 14, yet in verse 16, God opens their ears. So what must we be talking about? Two different ears or God's messed up, Right? Outwardly, he's not speaking, but he's speaking inwardly, and he opens up the ears that receive understanding inwardly. Then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. God deals with men in their inner man by communicating information to them. I can remember Abimelech one time took Abraham's wife, Sarah, and the Lord appeared to him in the night and said, uh, you touch her, bud, and you're in trouble. Genesis chapter 20. Did the Lord save Abimelech? Let's look at it. Did he keep Abimelech's soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword? <laughs> yes, he did. I mean, Abimelech was scared to death. He got up in the morning and chewed Abraham out for getting him in such trouble that God had to speak to him and save him from such danger. The Lord will speak to men. How about Laban? When Jacob left Laban's presence, Laban pursued after him, and the Lord appeared to him and said, In a vision of the night, you better not do anything good or anything evil against Jacob. You better be careful how you treat him. Don't say anything good. Don't say anything evil. Was Laban saved from messing with God's anointed? Yes. In a vision of the night, not out here, not with these eyes, but in the spirit, inside man. God speaks for you. Don't perceive it with the senses. But what do the charismatics want to do? Everything's outwardly in the senses. You see a vision with your eyes. 
You hear it with your ears, but God deals inwardly when He deals in this particular way. What in the world made some of the differences in our lives? Well, where did you get the ideas to do some of the things that you did? Because God seals instruction inside us. What am I your pastor for this morning? Somebody sealed some instruction sometime. I didn't dream that one up. It was the last thing I wanted. Where did it come from? God puts instruction in men and seals it there upon their beds. He keeps back our soul from the pit and our lives from perishing by the sword. What made me repent and want to go home when I was in the state of Washington after running away when I was 16 years old? I mean, my mother didn't die. What, what brought me back to Michigan? God sealed instruction in me and made that decision for me, and he kept back my life from the pit. I mean, what good would I have accomplished out there? And not much. Not much. Now, he goes further. Verse 19. Speaking of how God deals with men, using the singular pronoun, he is chastened also. Notice that we're now moving to a second aspect of it. God sometimes speaks, but sometimes speaking may not be enough, or sometimes speaking may just not be God's way of dealing with a man. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain. Let me, let me focus on that word chastened for just a minute. Don't always jump to the conclusion that when you see the word chastened, it must mean as a consequence of previous sins. The word chastened is also just a general word describing affliction. You, you, if you jump to that conclusion, you miss the whole point of Job 33 and then the whole point of the book of Job. Because... Job wasn't being chastened for anything he had done until by the time you get to chapter 33. I mean, he had done some things by this point. But as of chapter 2, when Satan had done all those things to him, he had done nothing worthy of that punishment. God was using it for other means. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread. And his soul, dainty meat, you don't want to eat. You're so discouraged and frustrated and depressed about your physical well-being, about the way things are going, you just don't even feel like eating anymore. Verse 21, his flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Now, that's what was happening to Job. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. That is describing what God will reduce us to sometimes. And he's dealing with Job's circumstances where he reduced Job's physical health to very poor straits where Job felt that he had one foot in the grave, as we're often apt to say. And all of us, many of us have had physical afflictions where God is humbling us through affliction. But now remember, it's not punishment for past sins necessarily because Job wasn't guilty of past sins. God brought that affliction upon Job for other reasons. And God can do that. God can do that. Let's keep reading in verse 23. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, to show man what? His ungodliness? To show man his uprightness. Then he, that is this interpreter or messenger, is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. 
The messenger or interpreter of verses 23 and 24 is a minister of the gospel, a prophet in Old Testament times, a pastor, teacher, prophet, uh, apostle, or evangelist in New Testament times, who can come along when you feel like you're just about to slip into death. Life is so miserable and your affliction is so great if there happens to be a messenger there from God, one of his ministers, an ambassador, who is able to interpret things. Who is the messenger or mess, who is the messenger or interpreter for Job? Elihu. Elihu, that's exactly what we're talking about here. He's able to explain the situation to him to show man his uprightness. Brother, you may not have sinned at all in this particular matter. God is greater than man. Glory in him. Don't look at these things as being grievous. Joy in them. Don't jump to the conclusion you've sinned. He is gracious unto him. That is the messenger or God's minister is gracious to the man who's in affliction and saith, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. That is the messenger is able to preach Jesus Christ, God's mercy, and describe the ransom. You're not going to be in the pit. You're going to be in God's presence like David found in Psalm 73 when he went into the sanctuary. What did David run into in the sanctuary? He went into the sanctuary envious at the wicked and despairing of washing his hands and cleansing his heart. What did he find in the sanctuary? A messenger, an interpreter, who was able to declare David's uprightness and show that there's a ransom found and one day God's going to awake and destroy all those wicked he's guilty with, but the ransom will have delivered David's soul from the pit. You follow that? That's what a minister of the gospel is supposed to do. When you're in affliction, under the troubles and persecutions and trials of this world, the minister is to preach and to show you your uprightness, if it is there. You know I don't preach it absolutely that it's always there. If it's there, and to show you a ransom that you're going to be in God's presence. That's preaching grace. You know how it says in Colossians 4 or 5, let your speech be always with grace. This is so important. Let your speech be always with grace. What about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? What was their speech? Salt. What was Elihu's? Grace. You're going to, I'll jump ahead and show you. Look at verse 32. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. Is that grace? When you meet a man who's in affliction, I mean, he feels like he's got one foot in the grave, he's despairing of life, nothing gives him the pleasure that it once did, bread doesn't, dainty, delicate foods don't please him anymore, he's so frustrated and fearful about the things God has brought upon him, a wise man, and Elihu, one of you, me, ought to find that man in that affliction and speak graciously to him, not saying, well, you must have sinned. That's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Grace is not to jump to that conclusion. Grace is to try to justify. Not justify to such an extent that God isn't fair in what he's doing, but to justify saying, you may very well be upright, but remember, friend, God is greater than man, and he doesn't have to give an account of any of his matters. That's how we ought to comfort one another. Not saying, well, you better get on your knees and repent like we heard eight times last Sunday night from these three men. Verse 25, Oh, when that message comes, what happens to that man who's afflicted? 
Remember, his bones are poking out. He's so skinny and undernourished and despairing of life, his bones are sticking out. But what do we read about him in verse 25 after he hears the message? His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth, for every day is wonderful, isn't it? I mean, young people are so naive. They just live one day at a time. Everything's wonderful. Life is great. They're enjoying life. They have health and vigor. And they're experiencing new tastes and new pleasures. Our lives return to that. I have a life like that. I have those pleasures. And my flesh is fresher than a child's, figuratively speaking. Why? Because of the message of verses 23 and 24 that came. Verse 26, this individual, after that happens, he shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. Whose righteousness? His. The man's righteousness. The man is righteous. Job was a perfect man, upright. He will render to that man his righteousness. He'll be favorable to him. He shall see his face with joy. God, speaking in verse 27, He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was not right, and it profited me not, He will deliver His soul from going into the pit, and His life shall see the light. A man is relatively righteous. He's relatively upright. God afflicts him. The message comes along. A ransom's been found. Don't worry. Don't accuse yourself unjustly. A ransom's been found that will deliver you from the pit. He's renewed with the hope that there's something better and that he really, he's not being judged as a wicked hypocrite that has no hope. And then he can repents of any sin that he is guilty of. Not saying, I'm so innocent that what you're doing to me is not fair, but repents if there is anything that he is guilty of, and then God will deliver his soul completely from going to the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man. This is what we ought to look for. Not what we ought to think as being unusual, but what we ought to look for on a frequent basis, because the Bible tells us it is frequent. Oftentimes, God deals this way with us. He afflicts us, then he brings a message of comfort and grace that mentions the ransom that we have in Christ Jesus and also mentions your uprightness. And once you hear that, isn't your flesh fresher many times and your youth renewed and you go out of the sanctuary understanding things better than when you came in like Psalm 73? Holding your finger there at Job 33, come over to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12. In the New Testament, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who would you say was the most godly man? Paul. Paul. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verses 1 through 6, Paul was received up into the third heaven and saw revelations of heavenly things and heard heavenly things. But God didn't want him to reveal those visions or speak those things here on earth. And notice what we read in, beginning in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure. Now notice it does not say, and because I was exalted above measure. 
Do you see the big difference? And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, what did Job get? A number of thorns in the flesh, messengers of Satan to buffet him. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Because I should be exalted? Because I was exalted? No. Lest I should be. Verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now what does Paul say about that little statement? Most gladly. Most gladly. Most gladly. Remember Hebrews 12. It ought not to be grievous. It ought to be joyous. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, none of you will ever get to where Paul was. Never. You'll never be as bad off as Paul was. But Paul said, most gladly will I take pleasure in these things. And why will he do that? Because God said this, my strength is only made perfect in weakness. In order for God to magnify his strength, what must he do? Weaken us. Weaken us. Do you see? Oh, I wish I could pour that into your heads. God can't show his strength if you're strong. I mean, if he's got a hedge around you and you're just cruising along and nothing's happening to you, how can he show his strength? You're showing your strength. How can he show his? Bring you to your knees and tear you apart and see if you will turn to him to draw simply from his person sufficient strength not to curse him, not to become frustrated, not to blaspheme, not to speak foolishly, but to continue worshiping him. Now, is that strength? Do we look at Job 1, and when Job rent his mantle, put ashes on his head, and worshiped God, after all those messengers came from Satan with all the destruction that had been wrought, do we think Job was strong? Absolutely. Where did he get that strength? From God. But can God show that strength without driving us to our knees? No. How does he do it? Physical affliction many times. He gets us down physically. You know, I could go right through this congregation and talk about physical problems this congregation has or has had that I've had. Have we ever had any financial problems in this congregation? Don't laugh. Yes, we have. How about... Anybody ever been unemployed in the Greenville Church? Indeed. Have you ever had trouble selling houses? Indeed. Has it, got, has it been so long sometimes selling houses that we almost get frustrated? How about getting jobs when we live in Florida? Who's guilty of uh, strength there, remember? So much God does for us. But notice Paul. Did God bring affliction upon Paul in the flesh? because of anything Paul had done? No. God brings affliction 
to perfect his saints and promote himself. Hear it. God often brings affliction to perfect us and to promote himself. And that perfecting of us doesn't mean for anything we've done in the past, but to make sure we won't do something in the future that we might be tempted to do. And to promote himself. Do you see that in Paul? First of all, he perfected Paul from any future pride, and he promoted himself by showing his strength. Don't we look at Paul and say, how did he do it? I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. We read about what the man went through, and we say, what a man. If I could be like that. Well, look, you're seeing the, you're seeing the strength of God. And see, Paul realized that. When Paul saw that, he said, most gladly, therefore, because of that fact, because God needs me weak before he can show strength, I will get glad when I see things going wrong in my life. That's all I can say. There's nothing more I can say on that subject. I've said this before. When afflictions come our way, we ought to take them as a challenge. We ought to get excited about them. That's the only way we can show God what He's looking for. That is the only way you can show God you love Him for not. Do you understand that? That's the only way you can show His strength in your life. That's the only way you, people want to talk all the time about showing that they're spirit-led. They want, you know, the charismatic religion has emphasized so much being showing that the Spirit's living in us. Well, I'll tell you how to show the Spirit's living in you, and that is to be joyful in the face of adversity. You say, well, I want to show joy when things are going wonderfully. The wicked do that. The wicked do that. What kind of joy is that? It's not the joy of the Holy Ghost, necessarily. But joy in persecution most definitely is. That's where God's strength comes through our lives and comes out. I mean, forget tongues. Listen, show me your spirit by calling me and saying, look what went wrong. Brother Jim, i got to have you stand up and tell everybody what happened to you. What do you think Marlene Edwards is this morning? The poor woman has measles. Jim hurt his back this week. His car wouldn't run. He's had a few afflictions. And this morning I walk in, the first thing he wants to tell me is how bad life's been treating him. I like hearing that as long as they can do it with a smile on your face. And he told me not to preach anymore on Job. <laughs> I, I understand that. I mean, once you learn this, guess what? To whom much is given, much shall be required. Once you fully see that God brings affliction for our benefit and that we ought to most gladly glory in it and take pleasure, guess what God's going to do? It ain't getting better in the Greenville church. And I say that with a, with a touch of apprehension, but I also know that God knows, <laughs> God also knows what is best. And if we want to move on to perfection, guess what we need more of? Tribulations worketh patience, patience, Experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. And how does he get us there? we got to go back to square one. Tribulations. Oh, I wish I could get that point across. We ought to be reveling in it. We ought to be sharing horror stories with each other. It was worse for me this week than it was for you. Isn't that exciting? I take pleasure in infirmities. If Listen, if we were doing that, we'd go. life would sail a lot smoother for... All of us. Some of you have physical problems, financial problems, business problems, children problems, parent problems. We've got all kinds of problems. They're nothing. They're nothing. 
We ought to glory in them. God is greater than man. We love him anyway. He's our portion. As long as we know God, know God, let hell rise, let hell rise and come. It's not going to take me away from God. And by hell, I mean hell in this world. Let him bring it all. I will trust in him and glory in those tribulations because I can show God's strength. God brings affliction many times simply to perfect us, make us better, and to promote himself. Now, what can, how can we complain about that? I'll not say any more. Oh, there's so much more I'd like to say on that, but I, I won't do it because we're running out of time. We cannot be so foolish as to accuse God of chastening us without knowing the crime. How many times have I heard people say, I wish I knew what was in my life causing this to happen. When you say that, let me tell you what you're saying about God. Now, now all of you look at me and get red, those of you who've said it to me. I wish I knew what was in my life causing this to happen. When you say that about God, here's what you're saying. God is not as good of a heavenly father as I am as an earthly father. Because let me ask you, you parents this. How many of you beat your children without telling them what you're beating them for? Jump up. I hope none of you do that. Don't we always sit down and make it a very important part of punishment to tell our children why they're being punished? And the younger they are, the more time we spend making sure they understand exactly why we're treating them in this terrible way. Don't we do that? When we say, I wish I knew, we are saying God would punish us and not reveal why he's punishing us. My God is not an unjust God like that. Nature itself teaches us that we should not do that, and God is a better father than we'll ever be. But people come to me and they talk, and don't, listen, please keep coming to me. But I want you, because I don't, when you're, when you're at home, when you're in your bed, I want you thinking about things a little differently. Don't ask, what have I done wrong? If you have sinned and the things in your life are happening because of past sin, you will know what the past sin is. God will not leave you in ignorance. You say, but doesn't the Bible tell us to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, and we ought to examine ourselves? That's before chastening. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Right. Notice it's not because we are judged, we judge ourselves. I mean, that's, that's, we get things so backwards, don't we? We say, God's judging us. Well, I better judge myself here. What am I doing wrong, wife? We're supposed to be doing that all the time so we don't get judged. If we live our lives right, God is not chastening us for past sins. He's chastening us for future sins. So then we can have the attitude Paul does and James does, rejoicing in tribulation. Do you think Paul would tell Christians to rejoice in chastening if it was for past sins? Oh, no, he'd tell them, get things straightened out. But see, if you're always searching your heart and examining yourself on a regular basis, nothing is going to take you unawares. Unless you want to believe a God is not as good of a father as you are. I've never beat my children without telling them why I beat them. I made it very clear. The younger they are, the clearer I make it. Does that point hit home with any of you? Listen, if you don't know something that's wrong in your life, you automatically assume by grace, Job 33. 
and that makes it a whole lot easier to handle. If you jump to the conclusion it's God judging you, your life as build ends so far all over again. Notice, a Christian's life ought to be such that when tribulations come, we get excited about them. And if it was chastening for sin, there's no excitement in that. Do you follow the point? See, most of the time in a true child of God's life who has a clean heart, like Psalm 73, 1 said, tribulations are not going to be because of past sin, but moving us on to perfection. I've taught you three determinants of Christian experience. Things happen to people for three and only three reasons. One, God is judging you for past sins. And if he's judging you for past sins, you will know that. Look at Job chapter 36. Let me prove it. I'll prove it right from Elihu's own words. Job chapter 36, verse 8. He's speaking of men and kings who sin. And if they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction. Verse 8, now do you got it? Here are men all wrapped up in cords of affliction. That's like Job was. Verse 9, Then he showeth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He openeth also their ear to discipline and commandeth that they return from iniquity. Don't you worry about finding that sin in your life when God's pouring chase. You know it. And if everybody would be honest, you'd all stand up this morning and say before God, He's never chastened me when I didn't know why He was doing it. I well knew if, to be honest with myself, I knew why it was coming and I knew how to get rid of it rather quickly. Don't worry about that. When it comes and you don't know why, he's trying to show his strength in your weakness and glory in it. Rejoice in it. Be exceeding glad, as James says. That was the first determinant. God judges for past sin. If you don't know of any past sin, Get rid of that determinant. Cut off the page, whatever you have to do, of the outline. Don't think about that determinant. If you think about it, God's going to be as happy with you as he was happy with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The second determinant is you're simply suffering the natural consequences of past foolishness. And do we ever have to wonder about those? No, when we're enduring something, it's because we were stupid in the past. We know that too, don't we? We don't have to pray to God, will you reveal past foolishness? I mean, if we're in a marriage situation where we're suffering with some evil woman, who married her? We did. If we've got children problems, they're turning, they're turning away from us and they're being rebellious, we can look back and we can know whether we disciplined them properly or not. If we weigh 325 pounds and the doctor says your blood pressure is 240 over 120 and you've got six months to live, and we've drank a six-pack of Pepsi and eaten a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, Every day of our lives for the past 10 years, need we wonder why we're 300 and whatever pounds it was. No, we know those things. We know those things. It's, and we can rule those out rather quickly. We can rule them out rather quickly. And we can come down to the third determinant that God must be trying to perfect me. God wants to make me a better person. So he's bringing these things my way to see if I can't handle them better than last month when they came and I was a wreck. The church members called me and I was, you know, on the verge of tears. Now we're talking and I can tell them what, how bad things are and how excited I am that God must have something better for me. And I'll tell you right while you're saying that, He's already proved that He's got something better for you. You're handling it the right way. I have six minutes until 12 o'clock according to my slow watch. 
And I want to cover the rest of Elihu because we can't do this forever. Job chapter 35. We've been through chapter 34 now. Chapter 33, I mean. Where God tells us that, lo, He often works this way with men. And I hope you've got the message of Job 33. That is the base, the basic lesson of the book. Job chapter 34, verse 23. For he will not lay upon man more than right, that he should enter into judgment with God. See, Job has just spent a number of chapters judging God. God will never lay upon you more than is right. So once we know that, and if we believe that, God is greater than man. He can do whatever He wants because He'll never do anything but what is right. You'll never have a chance to judge God. We often wish that we would, but we never would. We never will. What should our attitude be when judgment comes upon us? We should look and rejoice in it as perfection for the future. We should also say, as verse 31 says of the same chapter, Job 34, 31, Surely it is meet, that is, it's appropriate, fit, right, or proper to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Look at verse 33. I like this verse. Should it be according to thy mind? Should it be according to thy mind? Should God treat you the way that you think you ought to be treated? Now look what Elihu says. He will recompense it whether thou refuse or whether thou choose. I like the little poetry. Whether you choose it, whether you refuse it, God's going to judge sin. Job 34 and verse 33. Should it be according to thy mind? It'll be according to God's mind. Choose it, refuse it, Job. It's on its way. You've got to divide here. Some of you may be jumping to the conclusion, well, now look at God's talking about chastisement for past sins. We've got chastisement for past sins when you get to Job 34. Job's been sinning for the last 30 chapters. Do you, you follow that? Job's affliction began without any past sin, but for his perfection to glorify God's strength. But now Job's added sins. And see, Job wants to refuse what God's bringing his way. And Elihu's saying, well, it's coming whether you refuse it or choose it, Job. It's on its way. The attitude ought to be, Job, I have borne chastisement. God, I see all this affliction. I will not offend anymore. Verse, 20, verse 31. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. <clears throat> Look at verse 35. Elihu speaking of Job. Job hath spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. What's Elihu saying? It's my desire that Job be tried unto the end. What, the end of his life? No, the end of this rebellion that he's got. It is my desire that Job be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin, he clappeth his hands among us, and multiplieth his words against God. Now we read in chapter 33 that Elihu was trying to justify Job. Now he's saying, I want Job to be tried to the end. Do you see the two perspectives? Job, you were just. When God brought the afflictions upon you, you were a just man. I want to justify you. God, were, God was bringing these things to teach you some lessons for the future and to glorify himself. But now here in 34, he's shifting a little bit. 
and looking at Job's sins of speaking against God from chapter 3 on, and he's saying, I wish Job would be tried to the end for it because Elihu's out looking for vindication of his God. Turn over in chapter 35, Job chapter 35. Let's look at verse 14. In the first few verses, he quoted Job again, where Job said, What profit do I have from living righteously? And Elihu is answering that. He says in verse 14, describing how that God will punish the pride of evil men, he says, Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore trust thou in him. But now, because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger. Yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain, he multiplieth words without knowledge. See, Job had a chance, but now Job, according to verse 15, is being visited in anger. God is now angry with Job, not proud of him, like he was in chapters 1 and 2. Now he's angry with Job, although not in great extremity, he is being punished now for past sins, because Job is opening his mouth in vain and multiplying words without knowledge. And Elihu goes on in chapter 36 to say, verse 2, Suffer me a little, allow me a little more time, I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. And that's what we always ought to be looking for, how to justify or vindicate God. I'm going to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. Now let's look at a cocky statement in verse 4. For truly my words shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Ooh, Elihu, quite a boast. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Truly, my words aren't going to be false. And men call anything even close to that pride. Now, sure, you can make statements like that and, and do it in pride, but Elihu did it in a godly way. Words like that are not necessarily proud. Look, at, he goes on to describe that God is mighty and can do whatever he wishes. Verse 24 is what I want you to get from chapter 36. He's describing the mightiness of God. And he says in verse 24, Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. I have tried to teach you the importance of looking at the natural creation, the sun, the moon, the stars. Take your children out, look at the sky, and magnify the work of God. Verse 24, which men behold. Every man can see the stars. Verse 25, every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Are the stars a long way away? Yes, but men may behold them. And it is our duty to magnify the greatness of God to such an extent that when afflictions come our way, the last thing we're going to do is bark against that God. Right. Let's magnify the work of God to our children. You know, then Elihu just goes on to describe it, for he maketh small the drops of water. He talks about rain and vapor and his clouds and the sea and so forth. And then in verse 37... Verse 37, this verse comforts me. It allows me the privilege of calling thunder God's voice. Right. Verse 1, At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of his place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goeth out of his mouth. 
He directeth it under the whole heaven and His lightnings under the ends of the earth. After it a voice roareth. He thundereth with the voice of His excellency. And He will not stay them when His voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with His voice. Great things doeth He which we cannot comprehend. Let's remind our children that a storm and the thunder is just God's voice. And that's just one little indication of God's greatness. And when you listen to thunder and feel it shake the house that's built and the ground that you're standing on, is God so small that we can accuse Him of doing wrong? In verses 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10, we have described what I was able to see more than you in Michigan, and that's frost, snow, and ice. And why does God send frost, snow, and ice? It wasn't until I studied this out thoroughly that I saw an answer to something I used to say. Every time there was a snow day, we couldn't go to school, we couldn't go to work. I'd turn to the wife, I'd turn to my parents and say, isn't it great how God can shut man down? Those are the words I used. How God can shut man down with a few flakes of soft snow. Our planes, plows, buses, trucks, cars, everything quits. Look at chapter 37 and verse 7. He sealeth up the hand of every man that all men may know his worth. What does every man have to do on a snow day? You know, they had snow days back then too. You know what you were sealed up from doing? You didn't go out and pick corn. You didn't go out and do anything. He seals up the hand of man. There's no more accumulating, no work to be... Can you work like this, especially in Job's day? No, he seals up the hand of man. Why? So that God can know his worth. I like that. Frost, snow, and ice. See, in verse 10, he says, the breadth of the waters is straightened. You know, all the little waves disappear, and it becomes ice. He straightens out the water and stops man so that man has to look and observe his work. Every, every one, when they take a snow day, even those who deny the existence of God, guess what they're doing? Admitting the existence of God and His work. Oh, he goes on to describe the clouds in the rest of this chapter. Let's take up reading in verse 18. Or verse, verse 16. Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him which is perfect in knowledge? These are a bunch of rhetorical questions. How thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind. Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Our minds are so dark compared to the glory of the wisdom of God. We can't order our speech. Shall it be told him that I speak? Should God know that I'm speaking? If a man speak, Surely he shall be swallowed up. He opens his mouth and he's going to utter foolishness before God in comparison to God. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them. The lightning that's in the clouds, the wind passes and cleanses the clouds. This is looking at it from man's perspective. Fair weather cometh out of the north. That's comforting. Verse 22, fair weather cometh out of the north. Don't worry, you southerners. We just read back here, that in verse 17, our garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by a south wind. We feel the warmth of the sun, 
from a south wind, but good weather comes out of the north. According to verse 22, with God is terrible majesty. I'll tell you why it comes out of the north. Because God lives in the north. His city is in the north, as the Bible tells us in several places. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Does that mean He'll never afflict absolutely? He will never afflict unjustly. Men do therefore fear Him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. God is greater than man. He is mighty in power. We cannot find Him out. He's excellent in judgment. He will not afflict unjustly. What should we do? Let us magnify God. He is greater than man. Let us prove our own selves. Indeed, we need to do that on a daily basis. Not just when things go wrong, but prove ourselves continually and submit humbly to our circumstances that the strength of Christ may rest in us. Let us glory in our infirmities and do it with gladness, exceeding great joy, as it's said in Scripture, that God may perfect us. Don't be a Job in thinking that you're being treated unfairly. Don't be life as either in thinking that you've sinned and looking for what that sin is in your life. Prove your own selves on a regular basis. And when tribulations come, glory in them. They are an opportunity for you to be a better man and a better woman. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Enjoy in affliction, knowing that it is evident. Job 32 in your Bibles, where the Lord willing will continue a further study of the book of Job. I felt guilty last after last Sunday in covering so quickly the words of Elihu and the words of God. I didn't. I did not feel guilty about covering so quickly the words of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But I did feel guilty about going so quickly over the words of Elihu. And this morning I want to deal exclusively with the words of Elihu in chapters 32 through 37. It's not going to be verse for verse, but it will deal with the more difficult ones and will deal with the more important verses. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee that You didst inspire Elihu to write the words that we have contained in Job the 32nd through the 37th chapters. O Lord, I thank Thee that Thou hast inspired those words and preserved them and kept them to our generation, that we can read them and from them find and learn a proper perspective on our lives. O Lord, it is my goal as Thy servant to teach a group of people to have Thee for their portion, that regardless of what happens to them here in this world, they'll look to Thee, they'll trust in Thee, and fear Thee and love Thee for naught. Lord, I want a congregation that will love Thee for naught, that if Satan even had the opportunity, which he does not, thanks be to God, to accuse them before thy presence, they would definitely love and fear thee for not. Heavenly Father, grant that we might lift up our hands, that we might not be faint in our minds, but that we would cheer ourselves in joy and affliction, knowing that it is evidence of our relationship to thee. 
and that we might glory and worship thee as Job did in the beginning of his affliction. Have mercy upon us now and grant us understanding by thy Holy Spirit to the end that this congregation might please thee more perfectly. And if they have not loved thee before as they ought to have, let us begin today through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. I have been accused in the past, and I've told you this before, that because I sometimes preach in series, I make it impossible for the Holy Spirit to use my preaching. There are those type of ministers who believe that being used of the Spirit is to walk into the pulpit with an empty mind. That is, you didn't study the work be the week before, you worked all week at a job. And you come into the pulpit and you tell everyone that you're pitiful, you're ignorant, you haven't studied your Bible, and now you're going to drop it open. And please pray for me that the Spirit will guide me to some passage to preach to you. That is a bunch of fatalistic hogwash. And I'm being kind in the choice of words. The Lord uses studying. He has never used a man who didn't prepare. You say, but I thought the Bible says that the Lord would give His disciples the words to speak without preparation in Matthew chapter 24. Yes, He did His apostles when they were in court before kings and magistrates. But He never called His ministers to apply that passage to the ministry. We're to study and to give ourselves wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now, I want to show you something this morning that I hope will cheer your hearts about my ministry. I have wanted to preach on Job for a while, but just hadn't been led to preach on it yet. And it was Easter Sunday evening, and I use that expression simply in the way that the, word, the world uses it and in the way Acts chapter 12 and verse 4 uses it. It was Easter Sunday evening when Brother Red Baker mentioned something to me about Elihu and Job, and we exchanged a few thoughts, and that led me in the next several days to read Job several times and want to preach on it. Now, that was about April 20th. Easter Sunday was April 19th. That was about Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday of that week. April 20th, 21st, or 22nd. As you know, on Friday, I flew to St. Louis and didn't come back until Sunday afternoon. So I didn't get my mail on Saturday, did I? On Monday morning, I went out to my mailbox and got the mail from Saturday. And I had a letter from the state of Louisiana dated April 21st, 1987, which was Tuesday of the previous week. Last Sunday evening, and all of Sunday, I preached to you from the book of Job all day. What chapter did I emphasize out of the book of Job? There was chapter 33. Chapter 33 is the kernel, the, the chapter of understanding in the book of Job. I emphasized chapter 33, and in my opinion, last Sunday evening we had a precious time in Job chapter 33. I get this letter on Monday morning from Linda Hodgson. Now I know she's going to hear my voice on the audio tapes that she receives, but I want her to hear them. On Monday morning, after I preached that on Sunday, I received a letter from Linda asking me this question. If there are any tapes dealing with the book of Job, especially chapter 33, I would like to order those. May God be praised 
for you using a rotten vessel like me to preach his word for his people who want some answers. How's that for a Monday morning pickup? I mean, the world may need their coffee. All I need is a letter like that once a week. Isn't that great? Are there any tapes where you've taught out of Job and especially chapter 33? Well, what did we do last weekend? But Job chapter 33. May God be praised for the use of study. Now, he told us to do it that way, and it works. It definitely works. Remember what we covered last week about the book of Job? I want you all familiar with Job so that you can dive into it and know right where you're at. Remember the first two chapters describe Satan's two primary attacks against Job. First of all, he took away all his possessions. Job hung right in there. Naked came I of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God. And when Satan came before the Lord, the Lord said to him, Look at Job. Although you've moved me to destroy him, he still retains his integrity. Job hadn't charged God foolishly yet. Job hadn't sinned with his mouth yet. In chapter 2, Satan takes away Job's physical health so that he's sitting in a campfire with a broken piece of pottery scraping the boils that he has, sore boils, the Bible tells us, from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Then his wife asks him to curse God and die, and he calls her a foolish woman and says, Shall not, if the Lord gives, can't the Lord also take away? And again, the Holy Spirit tells us Job has not sinned yet. He's worshiping God because God can do what he wants with his creation. Then those three friends come along, and they're the ones that finally have an influence on Job, as we discovered in reading the rest of the chapters. In chapter 3, Job begins complaining. In chapter 4, Eliphaz, the leader of the three, condemns Job. Then Job defends. Then Bildad condemns. Then Job defends. Then Zophar condemns. Then Job defends. That's a cycle. Each man taking his turn. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Between each one, Job using a chapter or two to defend himself. Because remember, they just made the flat-out statement, hey, looking at you, it's easy to tell what's wrong. You're a wicked hypocrite, and God's judging you. And then Job would try to defend himself, and it gets worse as we go along. I'm a pretty righteous man. In fact, now that I think about it, God's not even being fair with me. That's how the book of Job develops. They go through one cycle. Then Eliphaz starts over, and they go through a second cycle. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Job defending himself after each attack. Then they go through a third cycle. And then Job cuts loose with a long summary statement running from about chapter 26 through chapter 31. And then the words of Job are ended. You can see that in chapter 31, verse 40. The words of Job are ended. And now the author of the book of Job takes up and gives us five wonderful chapters from the mouth of God explaining exactly what was going on. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes on this morning reviewing these five chapters a little more carefully than we did last Sunday evening. Verse 1 of chapter 32, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. I mean, after three cycles, eight speeches, and they couldn't make any headway against Job. In fact, they were aggravating the situation. I mean, Job was getting more righteous the farther they went. They decided they'd all give up. Verse 2, Now there's a youngster sitting there, and I liken him to all the men and women in this congregation. I want you all to be like Elihu. 
because he had the right perspective. This youngster was sitting there, and now he's pretty upset. He's listened to enough hot air, as it were, for these chapters that have gone beforehand, and he wants to speak. Verse 2, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Now, Elihu's a godly man, and I want all of you to respond the same way. When you hear someone saying, this isn't fair, or complaining about this is so bad, what they're doing when they do that is saying this. They're condemning God and justifying themselves. And it ought to get a righteous man upset. When you hear someone complaining about their circumstances, they're talking foolishly and charging God wrongly like Job did. Now, Elihu got upset about it, and we ought to get upset. And you ought to with Job. Job's pitiful from chapter 3 through chapter 31, describing his righteousness. And when we hear that, we ought to cut people short. What do you mean you're complaining about your circumstances? There's no one in this church that has any right to complain about their circumstances. Either it's your fault they're so bad, or you're not getting nearly what you deserve. Now, if you look at it properly, what in the world are you saying it's so bad for? What you're saying is God is giving you worse treatment than he ought to, and you're justifying yourself. You deserve better. Isn't that what you do? Whenever you complain about your circumstances, aren't you saying you deserve better? That is exactly what you're doing when you complain about your circumstances. I deserve better. That's why I'm complaining. So we ought to get mad against the Job's. You know what that means you're going to have to do from time to time? Get mad with yourself. Get mad with yourself. You ought to be having a lie who nature inside that jump wants to jump out of your skin and get on your case like Elihu is going to do here. Verse 3, Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were guilty of this crime. Job, you're a hit, wicked hypocrite. That's why God's judging you. Yet they had no basis for that. They had no sin that they could bring up to say, Job, God's punishing you for this sin. So Elihu gets mad with the three men because their perspective is also wrong. Job's is, I deserve better than this. So Elihu's mad with Job. The three friends is, Job, you're so wicked, that's why God's punishing you this way. And Elihu gets upset with them because they didn't give a reason for why God would be punishing Job. They just said, in general, you're wicked. Now, we as Elihu ought to get upset with people who take that position, that God's judging me. God's judging me. Who are we going to have to get upset with from time to time? Ourselves. Anytime you get down on your knees and start crying or worrying about what you've done wrong, because God is punishing you, you are pulling an Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar. And any righteous person hears that's going to get upset about it. Because you're doing the same thing they did to Job, you just happen to be doing it to yourself. Oh, what have I done wrong? Oh, wring in your hands. What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? You may not have done anything wrong. God may be doing it for fun. You say, well, that's, I don't like that. Yeah, praise the Lord. That's right. 
If he wants to do it, what do I mean by fun? I mean doing it for his own pleasure. And it's always going to result in our profit anyway. We ought to just praise the Lord for it. This is so important. You know, we go through life, we're either Job or we're Bildad. One or the other. Most of the time, we're one or the other. If we think it's unfair, we're Job. And we ought to get upset at ourselves. And we ought to get upset at each other when we hear it. If we go through life saying, what have I done wrong now? Here comes God beating me again. What have I done wrong this time? We're like Eliphaz and the others, condemning ourselves without a cause. I'm gonna, I'll get and explain that in just a moment. Though God does afflict men by chastening for their sins, God doesn't always afflict men for their sins. He has other purposes in mind sometimes for afflicting men. And that's the first three verses. Notice Elihu is the only man that has the proper, the only man that has the proper perspective. Job and his three friends are both wrong, although differently wrong. That's why they were arguing back and forth. Because Job was saying, I'm righteous. They were saying, you're a wicked hypocrite. Both of them were wrong. See, Job was justifying himself saying, God doesn't have the right to do this to me. Bildad was saying, he has more than enough right because you're a wicked hypocrite. They were both wrong. Elihu was the only one that had the proper perspective. Now, in verse 4, down through the end of the chapter, Elihu explains a little bit about the attitude we ought to have toward the learned sages of our own generation of past generations. Verse 4, Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. He's referring primarily to this last long-winded speech that Job made that ended in chapter 31. Now Elihu was a youngster. He sat around and let these older men exchange all their ideas, and his frustration level was just going up. If they'd have had a blood pressure monitor on his arm, you'd have seen it hitting 150 over 90, 200 over 120. He was boiling. I'll prove it. He was boiling, wanting to let those men hear some truth for a change. But he waited because they were older. There is a place for some respect. But he didn't wait forever. Verse 6. Well, verse 5, when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore, I said, hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. And he goes on describing this for several more verses. Look at verse 18. For I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. His spirits moved within him like Paul's was in Athens. He couldn't take listening to these idiotic philosophers and looking at their idols. He had to let go. And so did Elihu. Verse 19, Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. See, I told you his pressure was great. It was like wine that has to burst. I will speak in verse 20 that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, you hear somebody babbling back and forth about a problem or some aspect of human existence and life or experience, and they don't know what they're talking about and it just boils up inside till you want to let them have it and get refreshed by telling them what's true. Does, does that ever happen to you? Or are you so ignorant 
You're so ignorant that you never have anything to say. Or are you so intimidated by everyone else that you're ever afraid to offer your opinion? Now I want to say something to all of you. How many of you have worked to convert your parents? You don't need to raise your hands necessarily. I don't want to embarrass anyone. How hard do you work to convert your parents? Now, some of you are going to think that I'm going after you. I'm going after everyone. Some of you have talked specifically about this. Do you know what I often hear? I mean, I know that it's difficult. But the answer is, I just can't tell my parents they're wrong. It, it's just too hard. You know, I'm supposed to honor my parents, and I've obeyed them for 18 years until I left home, and I, it's just too hard for me to tell them they're wrong and try to correct them. Age should speak. Days should speak. But great men, your great big daddy, may not always be wise. And they need the truth unless you are intimidated into ungodly fear or you are ignorant of wisdom so that you don't have anything to impart or you don't love them enough to want to teach them wisdom. Now, you got to fall. I don't know of any other I'd give you more options if there were more. I don't know of any more. Either you're intimidated by men, which you shouldn't be, or you don't love them, or you're ignorant of wisdom and you don't really have anything to say. If you're filling yourself with this book, you're going to have things to say. It's going to well up inside of you like wine in a bottle. It's going to want to burst forth and you're going to be holding it back in and pretty, boof, it's going to come out and you're going to give even daddy, even mommy, some wisdom. I know it's hard, but we've got to do it. Unless you want to fall into one of those three categories. See, Elihu is giving us the character of a godly man. He is not intimidated. He's in, he shows respect. I didn't say to go home from this sermon, jump on the phone and tell your daddy he's a fool. Give the man an opportunity to speak because experience should speak before youth. But if he's not speaking wisdom, you want to show your opinion. You ought to show your opinion if you're to be like Elihu. Great men are not always wise. I, I'm, I find comfort in that. You know, every time, every systematic theology I pull off my shelf and read it, it doesn't agree with scripture and it's full with, filled with idiotic reasoning and idiotic uses of scripture. It's sort of intimidating. You know, it's the, it's the mentality you hear so many times. How could all these good and godly men be wrong? Great men are not always wise. Elihu said they could easily be wrong. Great men are not always wise. Who cares what great men have said? Who cares if they live to be a hundred years old? Who cares if Charles Spurgeon is called the greatest Baptist preacher since the Apostle Paul? For those of you who've ever read Charles Spurgeon, you'll be hard pressed to find anything worth remembering. Unless you like pretty little sermons with lots of illustrations and anecdotes. You say, you're, you're sounding awful cocky. Blessed be God for Elihu. Amen. Great men are not always wise. I will show you mine opinion. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. As a minister, this passage is beautiful to give me all the confidence in the world I need connected with a couple more passages. How about Psalm 119, 98 through 100? 
through God's Word, which is the inspiration we have available to us, through God's Word we can know more than our enemies, know more than our teachers, and know more than the ancients. The church fathers blow all 78 volumes right out the back door. Read this volume. It's got the inspiration to give you more wisdom than they had. And then when I get to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which is my verse, remember that, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why did God do that? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I thank God as of this moment, I couldn't care less what anyone believes, teaches, or tries to require from me. And I mean anyone. Great men are not always wise. Couldn't care less what they think. Because there's a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. I've got both of those. I've got the spirit in me called the spirit of illumination in Ephesians 2 and you have him in that measure. But I also have a gift of the spirit inside me that I'm supposed to stir up and make profitable in addition to what you have. And I also have this book which you have. We don't need to be afraid of men, especially our parents. If we love our parents, we're going to try to convert them. We're not going to listen to their hogwash forever. But we're going to try to give, by hogwash, I mean foolishness, like Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to throw wisdom at them forever. Once we throw them wisdom a few times and they just keep rejecting it, there is a place to deny a fool any further exposure to wisdom. You don't want him to have it. He's not worthy of it. But let's make sure that we all go that far and don't cut short our parents. Look at verse 21 of this chapter. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man, for I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my Maker would soon take me away. We ought not to call men, oh, doctor, doctor so-and-so. Let's listen to doctor explain the Bible to us. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, call no man father upon earth. Now I'm going to give you an explanation of Matthew 23 that makes Bible sense and may help you. Was Paul the father of the Corinthians? Yes. Could Paul be called a father of the Corinthians? Yes. But what did Jesus mean when he said call no man father? Use Job 32. Flattering titles. Don't take the title. Don't take the title. Was Paul the father of the Corinthians? Absolutely. He begot them through the gospel. Was he to be referenced as father, father, father? No. That would be making the word, a noun, now a formal title, wouldn't it? Jesus said, call no man father on earth. Call no man rabbi or teacher. Call no man master. Because we're to be servants. The ministry is to be a servant of the rest of the congregation. I don't need to be called pastor all the time. I don't need to be called elder all the time. I'm your brother. Go ahead and call me servant. Boy, don't go that far. You are to esteem the ministry very highly in love for their work's sake. But call me a servant. It's not going to bother me. Call me Brother Crosby. Brother Jonathan. I call you brother. I'm your brother. Notice, isn't that a nice interpretation of how Job 32 fits Matthew 23 
Just don't take those words and make them a title. Rabbi, rabbi, or master so-and-so, master so-and-so, elder so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. I don't need those. I'm your brother. I'm your servant. And Elihu says a godly man won't use flattering titles because he, it's, so, it's so serious of a matter that my maker would soon take me away to give flattering titles. Remember, those who like titles are also those who wear fancy garments in public to be known as religious men. The priests of Rome and the nuns of Rome fulfill it to a T, wearing those great big garments and headdresses in public to be seen of men so that men will know there goes a religious man and he's called father and she's called mother and sometimes mother superior. But the Bible condemns those flattering titles. We don't need to use them. I thank God. I thank God for Job chapter 32, verses 4 through 22, in that it gives young men confidence. It ought to give every one of you confidence. You women should be able to sit down and correct your daddies. Great men are not always wise. And if you are filled with this book and have studied this book and have listened to the preaching, you have some wisdom you can give them. And while you show them honor and respect because they're your parents, yet you should love them also and you should love wisdom enough to want to speak it from time to time with them. Let's go now to chapter 33. Job 33. It's divided into two sections. Section, what, what we've had so far in chapter 32 is Elihu introducing himself. All of chapter 32 is basically Elihu introducing who he is, he's young, what he has going for him, the inspiration of the Almighty, and what his opinion is of Job and his three friends. Not very high. That's what we've learned in chapter 32. Now in 33, the first 13 verses, Elihu sort of joins in with the three friends and condemns Job in the first 13 verses. But he condemns Job in a different way. Let's read them. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. Does this sound like some preachers you've heard? I don't, I'm not sure if I know anything this morning, brethren. Please pray for me. I'll bet some of you know more than I do. You've studied your Bibles more than I, forget it. Don't, don't, that isn't humility. That isn't humility. That's pride. That kind of garbage is pride. You're taking pride in your own voluntary humility. Do you know how a humble man, was Elihu a humble man? How do we know he was a humble man? Because he was a godly man. And how does a humble man speak? Shut up, listen, and I'll teach you some knowledge. Clearly. You say, that doesn't sound humble to me. Let's go through the logic again and see if you can pick it up the second time. Was Elihu a humble man? Yes, Elihu was a humble man. Did Elihu say, I'm not sure what I'm talking about, but I'd like to offer my opinion. It may be right. Can we share some ideas this morning? He didn't share anything. He said, listen to my speeches and hearken to my words, and then I'll teach you some knowledge and I'll do it rather clearly. Verse 4, the Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. Stand up. If I'm not telling you the truth, refute it. If you can't refute it, shut up and listen. 
and obey it. Behold, verse 6, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying... Now he quotes Job. I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. Now Elihu comments on that statement. Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Job had asked for an audience with God. Do you remember all that back through the previous chapters? He said, oh, I wish God would take his rod off me and sit down to judgment bar with me. We'd reason this thing out, I'm using his words, and then he wouldn't flick me anymore. Well, Elihu comes along and says, I am in God's stead. Verse 6, Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid. Remember Job said, if he would take his terror away from me, give me a little bit of strength back, and let me sit down, well, I'd give him enough reasons that he'd get this rod off me. Remember all those statements? Well, Elihu remembered that. And this is a good way to deal with anyone. Remember what they said and use it against them. Yes, use it against them. I heard all that, Elihu said, now I'm here in God's, as God's representative, in God's stead. But I'm made of clay too. Job, you were begging for some daysman between you. Well, I'm here. Here's the daysman. I'm in between you and God. My terror is not going to make you afraid. Now listen to me. Job got his wish. Now, Job claimed that he was innocent when we read that quote in verses 9 through 11. He said, I'm clean without transgression. Now, that's a nice boast to make. I am innocent. What's he claiming to be innocent of? Why is he saying I am innocent? All this trouble I'm receiving is not fair. It just isn't fair. I'm not that bad. The deceived heart, a delusion of a deceived Christian, wouldn't you say? I'm just not that bad. I'm innocent. It isn't fair, but he's marking me out. He finds occasion against me. He counts me for his enemy. And remember, the problem with Job is he justified himself rather than God. How do you justify God? God is right. I'm guilty. To justify God is just to say, God is right. To justify yourself to say, I'm right. When you say, I'm right, what are you saying about God when he's afflicting you? He's wrong. That's what Job was doing. Elihu comes right after him. Behold, verse 12, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. I, I, you know, I mentioned this last Sunday night, I know, and I emphasized the last Sunday night, but what a precious, short little statement. I will answer thee. You want the answer to the whole mess? God is greater than man. Let him rip me up. Let worms destroy this body after my skin. His skin was already on the way out. He said, let worms destroy this body. He had a proper perspective for a few verses. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. God is greater than man. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God. God is greater than man. 
That is the bottom line to all afflictions in this world. God is greater than man. You say, you've said it enough times. No, because I'm going to get a phone call saying, Pastor, why are so many things happening to me? Forget the phone call. You'll say it to yourself. And no one will call me anymore. Why are these things... Why are these things happening to me? It isn't fair. Oh, you don't say that to yourself. I'm not that bad. Why are, why is everything going wrong? Thou art not just. I'll answer your whole dilemma. God is greater than man. Let him do whatever he will, yet I will praise him. I'll magnify him. I'll rejoice in whatever he does. God is greater than man. Job had the right attitude, didn't he, in the beginning? Job chapter 1, he had the right attitude. He didn't sin. And you know, he didn't sin because he retained his integrity and he justified God. He, God's right. God can do whatever he wants. Listen, I came into this world without nothing. Wife, foolish wife. I came in with nothing. God's given. Can't God take away? He didn't charge God foolishly. Now he's charging God foolishly by complaining against his circumstances and saying, I'm innocent relative to all this punishment. When you say you're innocent and you're, you don't deserve what's happening to you, you are saying God is not fair. God is wrong. That is not just. That is not right. God is greater than man. He can do whatever he wants. And if we would get down off our high horses and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and I'm going to show you this in a minute, God would jerk those afflictions away many times and exalt us. Do you know why Job lasted in that campfire longer than he needed to? Because of that rotten attitude. And I'm going to, you're going to see that. God would have pulled it away immediately if he would have just humbled himself and kept up the attitude he had in chapters 1 and 2. But he immediately began complaining in chapter 3. And then the three friends really got him on a roll. And so the Lord just left it there. In fact, the Lord aggravated it. I'll show you. But we'll get there in just a minute. Verses 1 through 13 of chapter 33 are Elihu condemning Job for his unjust and foolish claims of innocence before God. The whole conclusion is, God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? Now, how is Job striving against God? Because you may say to me, I'd never do that. Well, now, Job didn't stand there in the campfire and shake his fist at God and say, send a bolt of lightning, God, if you're there. I don't believe you're there. He didn't say it that way. He just said, I'm innocent. I don't deserve all this that's happening to me. This isn't fair. This is worse than I deserve. That is striving against God. For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Do you know what that means? God is greater than man. He can do whatever he wants. And guess what? He doesn't even have to tell you why. He doesn't have to give account of his matters. He can put you in that campfire and take everything away, and He doesn't have to answer to you. God is greater than man. Now, from 14 to 33, we have the nutshell of the book of Job where Elihu explains what is going on. In verses 14 through 33, he's going to explain a couple of ways that God deals with men. First of all, God speaks to them. Verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not audibly with his ear. God deals inwardly with man where the ear doesn't necessarily hear anything. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, 
Then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may with... I find this so interesting. Now notice. They don't perceive it. Their ears aren't working in verse 14, yet in verse 16, God opens their ears. So what must we be talking about? Two different ears or God's messed up, right? Outwardly, he's not speaking, but he's speaking inwardly, and he opens up the ears that receive understanding inwardly. Then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. God deals with men in their inner man by communicating information to them. I can remember Abimelech one time took Abraham's wife, Sarah, and the Lord appeared to him in the night and said, uh, you touch her, bud, and you're in trouble. Genesis chapter 20. Did the Lord save Abimelech? Let's look at it. Did he keep Abimelech's soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword? <laughs> yes, he did. I mean, Abimelech was scared to death. He got up in the morning and chewed Abraham out for getting him in such trouble that God had to speak to him and save him from such danger. The Lord will speak to men. How about Laban? When Jacob left Laban's presence, Laban pursued after him, and the Lord appeared to him and said, in a vision of the night, you better not do anything good or anything evil against Jacob. You better be careful how you treat him. Don't say anything good. Don't say anything evil. Was Laban saved from messing with God's anointed? Yes. In a vision of the night, not out here, not with these eyes, but in the spirit, inside man, God speaks for you. Don't perceive it with the senses. But what do the charismatics want to do? Everything's outwardly in the senses. You see a vision with your eyes. You hear it with your ears, but God deals inwardly when he deals in this particular way. What in the world made some of the differences in our lives? Well, where did you get the ideas to do some of the things that you did? Because God seals instruction inside us. What am I your pastor for this morning? Somebody sealed some instruction sometime. I didn't dream that one up. It was the last thing I wanted. Where did it come from? God puts instruction in men and seals it there upon their beds. He keeps back our soul from the pit and our lives from perishing by the sword. What made me repent and want to go home when I was in the state of Washington after running away when I was 16 years old? I mean, my mother didn't die. What, what brought me back to Michigan? God sealed instruction in me and made that decision for me, and he kept back my life from the pit. I mean, what good would I have accomplished out there? And not much. Not much. Now he goes further. Verse 19. Speaking of how God deals with men, using the singular pronoun, he is chastened also. Notice that we're now moving to a second aspect of it. God sometimes speaks, but sometimes speaking may not be enough, or sometimes speaking may just not be God's way of dealing with a man. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain. Let me, let me focus on that word chastened for just a minute. Don't always jump to the conclusion that when you see the word chastened, it must mean as a consequence of previous sins. The word chastened is also just a general word describing affliction. You, if you jump to that conclusion, you miss the whole point of Job 33 and then the whole point of the book of Job. Because... Job wasn't being chastened for anything he had done until by the time you get to chapter 33. I mean, he had done some things by this point. But as of chapter 2, when Satan had done all those things to him, he had done nothing worthy 
of that punishment. God was using it for other means. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat you don't want to eat. You're so discouraged and frustrated and depressed about your physical well-being, about the way things are going, you just don't even feel like eating anymore. Verse 21, his flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Now that's what was happening to Job. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. That is describing what God will reduce us to sometimes. And he's dealing with Job's circumstances, where he reduced Job's physical health to very poor straits, where Job felt that he had one foot in the grave, as we're often apt to say. And all of us, many of us, have had physical afflictions where God is humbling us through affliction. But now remember... It's not punishment for past sins necessarily because Job wasn't guilty of past sins. God brought that affliction upon Job for other reasons. And God can do that. God can do that. Let's keep reading in verse 23. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, to show man what? His ungodliness? To show man his uprightness. Then he, that is this interpreter or messenger, is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. The messenger or interpreter of verses 23 and 24 is a minister of the gospel, a prophet in Old Testament times, a pastor, teacher, prophet, apostle, or evangelist in New Testament times who can come along when you feel like you're just about to slip into death. Life is so miserable and your affliction is so great if there happens to be a messenger there from God, one of his ministers, an ambassador, who is able to interpret things. Who is the messenger or, mess who is the messenger or interpreter for Job? Elihu! Elihu, that's exactly what we're talking about here. He's able to explain the situation to him to show man his uprightness. Brother, you may not have sinned at all in this particular matter. God is greater than man. Glory in him. Don't look at these things as being grievous. Joy in them. Don't jump to the conclusion you've sinned. He is gracious unto him. That is the messenger or God's minister is gracious to the man who's in affliction and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. That is, the messenger is able to preach Jesus Christ, God's mercy, and describe the ransom. You're not going to be in the pit. You're going to be in God's presence. Like David found in Psalm 73 when he went into the sanctuary. What did David run into in the sanctuary? He went into the sanctuary envious at the wicked and despairing of washing his hands and cleansing his heart. What did he find in the sanctuary? A messenger, an interpreter, who was able to declare David's uprightness and show that there's a ransom found and one day God's going to awake and destroy all those wicked he's guilty with, but the ransom will have delivered David's soul from the pit. You follow that? That's what a minister of the gospel is supposed to do. When you're in affliction under the troubles and persecutions and trials of this world, the minister is to preach and to show you your uprightness, if it is there, 
You know I don't preach it absolutely that it's always there. If it's there, and to show you a ransom that you're going to be in God's presence, that's preaching grace. You know how it says in Colossians 4 or 5, let your speech be always with grace. This is so important. Let your speech be always with grace. What about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? What was their speech? Salt. What was Elihu's? Grace. You're going to, I'll jump ahead and show you. Look at verse 32. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak. For I desire to justify thee. Is that grace? When you meet a man who's in affliction, I mean, he feels like he's got one foot in the grave, he's despairing of life, nothing gives him the pleasure that it once did, bread doesn't, dainty, delicate foods don't please him anymore, he's so frustrated and fearful about the things God has brought upon him, a wise man, and Elihu, one of you, me, ought to find that man in that affliction and speak graciously to him, not saying, well, you must have sinned. That's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Grace is not to jump to that conclusion. Grace is to try to justify. Not justify to such an extent that God isn't fair in what He's doing, but to justify saying, you may very well be upright, but remember, friend, God is greater than man, and He doesn't have to give an account of any of His matters. That's how we ought to comfort one another. Not saying, well, you better get on your knees and repent like we heard eight times last Sunday night from these three men. Verse 25, Oh, when that message comes, what happens to that man who's afflicted? Remember, his bones are poking out. He's so skinny and undernourished and despairing of life, his bones are sticking out. But what do we read about him in verse 25 after he hears the message? His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth where every day is wonderful, isn't it? I mean, young people are so naive. They just live one day at a time. Everything's wonderful. Life is great. They're enjoying life. They have health and vigor. And they're experiencing new tastes and new pleasures. Our lives return to that. I have a life like that. I have those pleasures. And my flesh is fresher than a child's, figuratively speaking. Why? Because of the message of verses 23 and 24 that came. Verse 26, this individual, after that happens, he shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. Whose righteousness? His. The man's righteousness. The man is righteous. Job was a perfect man, upright. He will render to that man his righteousness. He'll be favorable to him. He shall see his face with joy. God, speaking in verse 27, He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was not right, and it profited me not, He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. A man is relatively righteous. He's relatively upright. God afflicts him. The message comes along. A ransom's been found. Don't worry. Don't accuse yourself unjustly. A ransom's been found that will deliver you from the pit. He's renewed with the hope that there's something better and that he really, he's not being judged 
as a wicked hypocrite that has no hope. And then he repents of any sin that he is guilty of. Not saying, I'm so innocent that what you're doing to me is not fair. But repents if there is anything that he is guilty of. And then God will deliver his soul completely from going to the pit and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man. This is what we ought to look for. Not what we ought to think as being unusual, but what we ought to look for on a frequent basis because the Bible tells us it is frequent. Oftentimes, God deals this way with us. He afflicts us, then He brings a message of comfort and grace that mentions the ransom that we have in Christ Jesus and also mentions your uprightness. And once you hear that, isn't your flesh fresher many times and your youth renewed and you go out of the sanctuary understanding things better than when you came in like Psalm 73? Holding your finger there at Job 33, come over to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12. In the New Testament, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who would you say was the most godly man? Paul. Paul. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verses 1 through 6, Paul was received up into the third heaven and saw revelations of heavenly things and heard heavenly things. But God didn't want him to reveal those visions or speak those things here on earth. And notice what we read in, beginning in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure. Now notice, it does not say, and because I was exalted above measure. Do you see the big difference? And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now what did Job get? A number of thorns in the flesh, messengers of Satan to buffet him. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Because I should be exalted? Because I was exalted? No. Lest I should be. Verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now what does Paul say about that little statement? Most gladly. Most gladly. Most gladly. Remember Hebrews 12. It ought not to be grievous. It ought to be joyous. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, none of you will ever get to where Paul was. Never. You'll never be as bad off as Paul was. But Paul said, most gladly will I take pleasure in these things. And why will he do that? Because God said this, my strength is only made perfect in weakness. In order for God to magnify his strength, what must he do? Weaken us. Weaken us. Do you see? Oh, I wish I could pour that into your heads. God can't show His strength if you're strong. I mean, if He's got a hedge around you and you're just cruising along, 
and nothing's happening to you, how can he show his strength? You're showing your strength. How can he show his? Bring you to your knees and tear you apart and see if you will turn to him to draw simply from his person sufficient strength not to curse him, not to become frustrated, not to blaspheme, not to speak foolishly, but to continue worshiping him. Now, is that strength? Do we look at Job 1, and when Job rent his mantle, put ashes on his head, and worshiped God, after all those messengers came from Satan with all the destruction that had been wrought, do we think Job was strong? Absolutely. Where did he get that strength? From God. But can God show that strength without driving us to our knees? No. How does he do it? Physical affliction many times. He gets us down physically. You know, I could go right through this congregation and talk about physical problems this congregation has or has had that I've had. Do Have we ever had any financial problems in this congregation? Don't laugh. Yes, we have. How about business? Anybody ever been unemployed in the Greenville Church? Indeed. Have you ever had trouble selling houses? Indeed. Has it, got, has it been so long sometimes selling houses that we almost get frustrated? How about getting jobs when we live in Florida? Who's guilty of uh, strength there, remember? So much God does for us. But notice Paul. Did God bring affliction upon Paul in the flesh? because of anything Paul had done. No. God brings affliction to perfect His saints and promote Himself. Hear it. God often brings affliction to perfect us and to promote Himself. And that perfecting of us doesn't mean for anything we've done in the past, but to make sure we won't do something in the future that we might be tempted to do and to promote himself. you see that in Paul? First of all, he perfected Paul from any future pride, and he promoted himself by showing his strength. Don't we look at Paul and say, how did he do it? I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. We read about what the man went through, and we say, what a man. If I could be like that. Well, look, you're seeing the, you're seeing the strength of God. And see, Paul realized that. When Paul saw that, he said, most gladly, therefore, because of that fact, because God needs me weak before He can show strength, I will get glad when I see things going wrong in my life. That's all I can say. There's nothing more I can say on that subject. I've said this before. When afflictions come our way, we ought to take them as a challenge. We ought to get excited about them. That's the only way we can show God what He's looking for. That is the only way you can show God you love Him for not. Do you understand that? That's the only way you can show His strength in your life. That's the only way you, people want to talk all the time about showing that they're spirit-led. They want, you know, the charismatic religion has emphasized so much being showing that the Spirit's living in us. Well, I'll tell you how to show the Spirit's living in you, and that is to be joyful in the face of adversity. You say, well, I want to show joy when things are going wonderfully. The wicked do that. The wicked do that. What kind of joy is that? It's not the joy of the Holy Ghost, necessarily. But joy in persecution most definitely is. That's where God's strength comes through our lives and comes out. I mean, forget tongues. Listen, show me your spirit by calling me and saying, look what went wrong. 
Brother Jim, I've got to have you stand up and tell everybody what happened to you. Where do you think Marlene Edwards is this morning? The poor woman has measles. Jim hurt his back this week. His car wouldn't run. He's had a few afflictions. And this morning I walk in, the first thing he wants to tell me is how bad life's been treating him. I like hearing that as long as they can do it with a smile on your face. And he told me not to preach anymore on Job. <laughs> I, I understand that. I mean, when, once you learn this, guess what? To whom much is given, much shall be required. Once you fully see that God brings affliction for our benefit and that we ought to most gladly glory in it and take pleasure, guess what God's going to do? It ain't getting better in the Greenville church. And I say that with a, with a touch of apprehension, but I also know that God knows, <laughs> God also knows what is best. And if we want to move on to perfection, guess what we need more of? Tribulations worketh patience, patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. And how does he get us there? We got to go back to square one. Tribulations. Oh, I wish I could get that point across. We ought to be reveling in it. We ought to be sharing horror stories with each other. It was worse for me this week than it was for you. Isn't that exciting? I take pleasure in infirmities. If, listen, if we were doing that, we'd go, life would sail a lot smoother for all of us. Some of you have physical problems, financial problems, business problems, children problems, parent problems. We've got all kinds of problems. They're nothing. They're nothing. We ought to glory in them. God is greater than man. We love Him anyway. He's our portion. As long as we know God, know God, let hell rise, let hell rise and come. It's not going to take me away from God. And by hell, I mean hell in this world. Let Him bring it all. I will trust in Him and glory in those tribulations because I can show God's strength. God brings affliction many times simply to perfect us, make us better, and to promote himself. Now, what can, how can we complain about that? I'll not say any more. Oh, there's so much more I'd like to say on that, but I, I won't do it because we're running out of time. We cannot be so foolish as to accuse God of chastening us without knowing the crime. How many times have I heard people say, I wish I knew what was in my life causing this to happen? When you say that, let me tell you what you're saying about God. Now, now all of you look at me and get red, those of you who've said it to me. I wish I knew what was in my life causing this to happen. When you say that about God, here's what you're saying. God is not as good of a heavenly father as I am as an earthly father. Because let me ask you, you parents this. How many of you beat your children, without telling them what you're beating them for. Jump up. I hope none of you do that. Don't we always sit down and make it a very important part of punishment to tell our children why they're being punished? And the younger they are, the more time we spend making sure they understand exactly why we're treating them in this terrible way. Don't we do that? When we say, I wish I knew, we are saying God would punish us and not reveal why he's punishing us. 
my God is not an unjust God like that. Nature itself teaches us that we should not do that. And God is a better father than we'll ever be. But people come to me and they talk. And don't, listen, please keep coming to me. But I want you, because I don't, when you're, when you're at home, when you're in your bed, I want you thinking about things a little differently. Don't ask, what have I done wrong? If you have sinned and the things in your life are happening because of past sin, you will know what the past sin is. God will not leave you in ignorance. You say, but doesn't the Bible tell us to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, and that we ought to examine ourselves? That's before chastening. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Notice it's not because we are judged, we judge ourselves. I mean, that's, that's, we get things so backwards, don't we? We say, God's judging us. Well, I better judge myself here. What am I doing wrong, wife? We're supposed to be doing that all the time so we don't get judged. If we live our lives right, God is not chastening us for past sins. He's chastening us for future sins. So then we can have the attitude Paul does and James does, rejoicing in tribulation. Do you think Paul would tell Christians to rejoice in chastening if it was for past sins? Oh, no, he'd tell them, get things straightened out. But see, if you're always searching your heart and examining yourself on a regular basis, nothing is going to take you unawares. Unless you want to believe a God is not as good of a father as you are. I've never beat my children without telling them why I beat them. I made it very clear. The younger they are, the clearer I make it. Does that point hit home with any of you? Listen, if you don't know something that's wrong in your life, you automatically assume by grace, Job 33. And that makes it a whole lot easier to handle. If you jump to the conclusion it's God judging you, your life as Bill Dad and Zophar all over again. Notice, a Christian's life ought to be such that when tribulations come, we get excited about them. And if it was chastening for sin, there's no excitement in that. Do you follow the point? See, most of the time in a true child of God's life who has a clean heart, like Psalm 73, 1 said, tribulations are not going to be because of past sin, but moving us on to perfection. I've taught you three determinants of Christian experience. Things happen to people for three and only three reasons. One, God is judging you for past sins. And if he's judging you for past sins, you will know that. Look at Job chapter 36. Let me prove it. I'll prove it right from Elihu's own words. Job chapter 36, verse 8. He's speaking of men and kings who sin. And if they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction. Verse 8, now do you got it? Here are men all wrapped up in cords of affliction. That's like Job was. Verse 9, Then he showeth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He openeth also their ear to discipline and commandeth that they return from iniquity. Don't you worry about finding that sin in your life when God's pouring chase. You know it. And if everybody would be honest, you'd all stand up this morning and say before God, He's never chasing me when I didn't know why He was doing it. I well knew. If, to be honest with myself, I knew why it was coming, and I knew how to get rid of it rather quickly. Don't worry about that. When it comes and you don't know why, He's trying to show His strength in your weakness and glory in it. Rejoice in it. Be exceeding glad, as James says. That was the first determinant. God judges for past sin. If you don't know of any past sin, 
get rid of that determinant. Cut off the page, whatever you have to do of the outline. Don't think about that determinant. If you think about it, God's going to be as happy with you as He was happy with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The second determinant is you're simply suffering the natural consequences of past foolishness. And do we ever have to wonder about those? No, when we're enduring something, it's because we were stupid in the past. We know that too, don't we? We don't have to pray to God, will you reveal past foolishness? I mean, if we're in a marriage situation where we're suffering with some evil woman, who married her? We did. If we've got children problems, they're turning, they're turning away from us and they're being rebellious, we can look back and we can know whether we disciplined them properly or not. If we weigh 325 pounds and the doctor says your blood pressure is 240 over 120 and you've got six months to live, and we've drank a six-pack of Pepsi and eaten a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts every day of our lives for the past ten years, need we wonder why we're 300 and whatever pounds it was? No, we know those things. We know those things. It's And we can rule those out rather quickly. We can rule them out rather quickly. And we can come down to the third determinant that God must be trying to perfect me. God wants to make me a better person. So he's bringing these things my way to see if I can't handle them better than last month when they came and I was a wreck. The church members called me and I was, you know, on the verge of tears. Now we're talking and I can tell them what, how bad things are and how excited I am that God must have something better for me. And I'll tell you, right while you're saying that, he's already proved that he's got something better for you. You're handling it the right way. I have six minutes until 12 o'clock according to my slow watch. And I want to cover the rest of Elihu because we can't do this forever. Job chapter 35. We've been through chapter 34 now. Chapter 33, I mean. Where God tells us that, lo, He often works this way with men. And I hope you've got the message of Job 33. That is the, base, the basic lesson of the book. Job chapter 34, verse 23. For he will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. See, Job has just spent a number of chapters judging God. God will never lay upon you more than is right. So once we know that, and if we believe that, God is greater than man. He can do whatever He wants because He'll never do anything but what is right. You'll never have a chance to judge God. We often wish that we would, but we never would. We never will. What should our attitude be when judgment comes upon us? We should look and rejoice in it as perfection for the future. We should also say, as verse 31 says of the same chapter, Job 34, 31, Surely it is meet, that is, it's appropriate, fit, right, or proper to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Look at verse 33, I like this verse. Should it be according to thy mind? Should it be according to thy mind? Should God treat you the way that you think you ought to be treated? Now look what Elihu says. He will recompense it whether thou refuse or whether thou choose. I like the little poetry. Whether you choose it, whether you refuse it, God's going to judge sin. Job 34 and verse 33. Should it be according to thy mind? It'll be according to God's mind. Choose it, refuse it, Job. It's on its way. You've got to divide here. Some of you may be jumping to the conclusion, well, now look at God's talking about chastisement for past sins. 
We've got chastisement for past sins when you get to Job 34. Job's been sinning for the last 30 chapters. You, you follow that? Job's affliction began without any past sin, but for his perfection to glorify God's strength. But now Job's added sins. And see, Job wants to refuse what God's bringing his way. And Elihu's saying, well, it's coming whether you refuse it or choose it, Job. It's on its way. The attitude ought to be, Job, I have borne chastisement. God, I see all this affliction. I will not offend anymore. Verse, 20, verse 31. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. <clears throat> Look at verse 35. Elihu speaking of Job. Job hath spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. What's Elihu saying? It's my desire that Job be tried unto the end. What, the end of his life? No, the end of this rebellion that he's got. It is my desire that Job be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin, he clappeth his hands among us, and multiplieth his words against God. Now we read in chapter 33 that Elihu was trying to justify Job. Now he's saying, I want Job to be tried to the end. Do you see the two perspectives? Job, you were just. When God brought the afflictions upon you, you were a just man. I want to justify you. God, were, God was bringing these things to teach you some lessons for the future and to glorify himself. But now here in 34, he's shifting a little bit and looking at Job's sins of speaking against God from chapter 3 on, and he's saying, I wish Job would be tried to the end for it because Elihu's out looking for vindication of his God. Turn over in chapter 35, Job chapter 35. Let's look at verse 14. In the first few verses, he quoted Job again, where Job said, What profit do I have from living righteously? And Elihu is answering that. He says in verse 14, describing how that God will punish the pride of evil men, he says, Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore trust thou in him. But now, because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger. Yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain, he multiplieth words without knowledge. See, Job had a chance, but now Job, according to verse 15, is being visited in anger. God is now angry with Job, not proud of him, like he was in chapters 1 and 2. Now he's angry with Job, although not in great extremity, he is being punished now for past sins, because Job is opening his mouth in vain and multiplying words without knowledge. And Elihu goes on in chapter 36 to say, verse 2, Suffer me a little, allow me a little more time, I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. And that's what we always ought to be looking for, how to justify or vindicate God. I'm going to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. Now let's look at a cocky statement in verse 4. For truly my words shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Ooh, Elihu, quite a boast. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Truly, my words aren't going to be false. And men call anything even close to that pride. 
Now, sure, you can make statements like that and, and do it in pride, but Elihu did it in a godly way. Words like that are not necessarily proud. Look, at, he goes on to describe that God is mighty and can do whatever he wishes. Verse 24 is what I want you to get from chapter 36. He's describing the mightiness of God. And he says in verse 24, Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. I have tried to teach you the importance of looking at the natural creation, the sun, the moon, the stars. Take your children out. Look at the sky and magnify the work of God. Verse 24, which men behold. Every man can see the stars. Verse 25, every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Are the stars a long way away? Yes, but men may behold them. And it is our duty to magnify the greatness of God to such an extent that when afflictions come our way, the last thing we're going to do is bark against that God. Let's magnify the work of God to our children. You know, then Elihu just goes on to describe it, for he maketh small the drops of water. He talks about rain and vapor and his clouds and the sea and so forth. And then in verse 37, verse 37, this verse comforts me. It allows me the privilege of calling thunder God's voice. Verse 1, At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of his place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goeth out of his mouth. He directeth it under the whole heaven and his lightnings under the ends of the earth. After it a voice roareth. He thundereth with the voice of his excellency. And he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. Let's remind our children that a storm and the thunder is just God's voice. And that's just one little indication of God's greatness. And when you listen to thunder and feel it shake the house that's built and the ground that you're standing on, is God so small that we can accuse Him of doing wrong? In verses 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10, we have described what I was able to see more than you in Michigan, and that's frost, snow, and ice. And why does God send frost, snow, and ice? It wasn't until I studied this out thoroughly that I saw an answer to something I used to say. Every time there was a snow day, we couldn't go to school, we couldn't go to work. I'd turn to the wife, I'd turn to my parents and say, isn't it great how God can shut man down? Those are the words I used. How God can shut man down with a few flakes of soft snow. Our planes, plows, buses, trucks, cars, everything quits. Look at chapter 37 and verse 7. He sealeth up the hand of every man that all men may know his worth. What does every man have to do on a snow day? You know, they had snow days back then too. You know what you were sealed up from doing? You didn't go out and pick corn. You didn't go out and do anything. He seals up the hand of man. There's no more accumulating, no work to be... Can you work like this, especially in Job's day? No, he seals up the hand of man. Why? So that God can know his work. I like that. Frost, snow, and ice. 
See, in verse 10, he says, the breadth of the waters is straightened. You know, all the little waves disappear, and it becomes ice. He straightens out the water and stops man so that man has to look and observe his work. Every, everyone, when they take a snow day, even those who deny the existence of God, guess what they're doing? Admitting the existence of God and His work. Oh, he goes on to describe the clouds in the rest of this chapter. Let's take up reading in verse 18. Or verse, verse 16. Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds? The wondrous works of Him which is perfect in knowledge? These are a bunch of rhetorical questions. How thy garments are warm when He quieteth the earth by the south wind? Hast thou with Him spread out the sky which is strong and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto Him. For we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Our minds are so dark compared to the glory of the wisdom of God. We can't order our speech. Shall it be told Him that I speak? Should God know that I'm speaking? If a man speak, surely he shall be swallowed up. He opens his mouth and he's going to utter foolishness before God in comparison to God. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them. The lightning that's in the clouds, the wind passes and cleanses the clouds. This is looking at it from man's perspective. Fair weather cometh out of the north. That's comforting. Verse 22, fair weather cometh out of the north. Don't worry, you southerners. We just read back here that in verse 17, our garments are warm when He quieteth the earth by a south wind. We feel the warmth of the sun from a south wind. But good weather comes out of the north. According to verse 22, with God is terrible majesty. I'll tell you why it comes out of the north. Because God lives in the north. His city is in the north, as the Bible tells us in several places. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Does that mean He'll never afflict absolutely? He will never afflict unjustly. Men do therefore fear Him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. God is greater than man. He is mighty in power. We cannot find Him out. He's excellent in judgment. He will not afflict unjustly. What should we do? Let us magnify God. He is greater than man. Let us prove our own selves. Indeed, we need to do that on a daily basis. Not just when things go wrong, but prove ourselves continually and submit humbly to our circumstances that the strength of Christ may rest in us. Let us glory in our infirmities and do it with gladness, exceeding great joy, as it's said in Scripture, that God may perfect us. Don't be a Job in thinking that you're being treated unfairly. Don't be life as either in thinking that you've sinned and looking for what that sin is in your life. Prove your own selves on a regular basis. And when tribulations come, glory in them. They are an opportunity for you to be a better man and a better woman. May God bless the preaching of His Word.